and welcome to the PLUS podcast. My name is Marianne Freiberger. The world needs to move to renewable energy sources such as wind and solar. The problem with those is that they're intermittent because the sun doesn't always shine all the time and the wind doesn't always blow all the time. What's important here then is efficient energy storage to bridge the gaps. So that's batteries, in other words. Currently, lithium-ion batteries are used here, but there are issues around their cost and how long they last and their safety. Hope is on the horizon, though, in the shape of liquid metal batteries, who stand to beat conventional ones on all three points. Recently, at an event organized by the Newton Gateway to Mathematics in Cambridge, we were very lucky to meet Donald Sadoway, who's played a very important role in pioneering liquid metal batteries. In this podcast, which has Sadoway talking to us from the US via Zoom, and we apologize for some of the sound quality, we find out more about liquid metal batteries. Sadoway tells us what's so good about liquid metal batteries and when we can expect to see them on the market. And he also tells us how he nearly ignored an email from Bill Gates, who eventually gave him funding for his company, Ambry, and why sometimes it's good to ignore the experts. But first, we asked him to give us a brief description of how liquid metal batteries work. So the liquid metal battery is, uh, as the name implies, um, it consists of electrodes. Both electrodes are liquids, uh, in contrast to the uh, electrodes in, say, today's lithium-ion battery, which has solid electrodes. Um, and liquid metal battery has a liquid electrolyte, just as the uh, um, other batteries do. But uh, in this case, um, it's operating at elevated temperatures, say about 500 degrees Celsius. And um, we've got a low-density liquid metal that sits at the top, um, and a high-density liquid metal that lies at the bottom. And in between is the molten salt uh, electrolyte. And uh, these three layers, they're all liquid. Uh, and it turns out that the uh, liquid metals are insoluble in the molten salt. And the molten salt is insoluble in the liquid metal. So they lie one on top of each other, uh, sorted by density. Uh, you think of uh, your, your home where you have salad oil and vinegar and they lie on top of one another. In this case we have three layers instead of two layers. And then when the battery discharges uh, the uh, low density liquid metal on the top uh, converts to ion and then the ion goes to the high density liquid metal on the bottom and over time uh, forms an alloy uh, with the high density liquid metal. and. Um, the low-density liquid metal on top gets uh, is, is consumed. Uh, and then to recharge the battery, we force current through it, and then that electro refines the low-density liquid metal out of the bottom metal and sends it back to the top and uh, uh, restores the battery to its pristine initial condition. Okay. And that's it. Um, and what's... What are the advantages of a liquid metal battery over conventional types? So uh, when it comes to massive uh, stationary storage, we're talking about uh, 100 megawatt hours and up, um, the, the conventional batteries, uh, uh, they just don't have the power uh, to satisfy it. Uh, people are using lithium ion, 
but as we know the lithium-ion battery has a volatile flammable electrolyte and at a massive scale uh, the danger of thermal runaway and then uh, fire and so on um, gives people pause. A liquid metal battery uh, is uh, not flammable in any form. Uh, yes, it's elevated temperature, but it's, it's not going to burn. And if the if the case breaches, uh, the contents will leak and then they'll freeze. It's it's we've never had fire and so on. And so uh, that's one one advantage is the safety. And then the second advantage is that. Uh, uh, we know with our telephone, mobile phones, and uh, laptop computers that over time the uh, capacity, the storage capacity of the lithium-ion battery fades. Um, it, it turns out liquid metal battery, you've got cells that have been running for years, a deep discharge every day, um, and uh, retaining 99.5 plus percent of their nameplate capacity. Because everything is liquid, it, the, the degradation mechanisms that lead to uh, loss of capacity in a lithium-ion battery, those mechanisms don't operate in, in the liquid metal battery. So long service lifetime is a, is a second advantage. And then finally, in the end, it comes down to cost. And uh, uh, the capital cost of, a say, a 100 megawatt hour installation using liquid metal would be lower than that for uh, lithium-ion. Uh, why is the cost lower? Well, you take a look at the ingredients. We use low-cost uh, um, elements for the for the electrodes, and and the uh, uh, salt is a low-cost salt. For example, right now, um, Ambry is building batteries with uh, calcium uh, as the low-density uh, liquid metal, and antimony as the high-density liquid metal. The salt is calcium chloride, which is the salt that we throw on the roads in the wintertime to uh, melt ice and snow. So that, that gives you an idea of how cheap this is. And so we don't have any of these uh, supply chain constrained elements. We don't have cobalt, we don't have nickel, we don't have lithium. Um, we don't have to buy anything from China. We can source everything here in North America. And I suspect that if we wanted to build this battery in Europe, we'd be able to source everything that we want in, in Europe because the, um, so there's a plurality of choices for the metal on top, plurality of choices for the metal on bottom, and a plurality of choices for the um, molten salt electrolyte. Um, so we could tailor this to the uh, availability of resources um, in mm -hmm. the location where it's being built. Yeah. Okay, now your company called Umbri, you already mentioned that. Um, it's it's recently expanded its manufacturing capabilities. Um, so when are we going to see liquid metal batteries commercially available? Uh, but by this time next year, uh, there was a, an announcement that uh, the first customer is uh, Microsoft. Microsoft is running huge data centers, which consume vast... Uh, amounts of electricity and they want to do so uh, with um, uh, electricity that's generated fossil free. So they've got uh, uh, large uh, solar uh, generating facilities and as we know um, the sun doesn't shine after sunset and so in order to bridge the intermittency between sunset and sunrise they've chosen to uh, deploy liquid metal battery. So that's that's the reason that we're expanding the manufacturing.
there's sort of a chicken and egg situation. We wouldn't build an expanded manufacturing facility unless we had the customers. And uh, only once we have the customer do we go and commit the resources to build the facility. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so you already mentioned that the liquid metal battery there is going to be used to bridge the gaps in production of solar energy. So more generally, will do you see liquid metal batteries having a role to play in the world moving to renewables? Well, no question, because the, the, the dominant renewables are solar and wind. And, and both of them, although they're advantageously carbon-free, both of them are intermittent. And uh, nobody wants carbon-free electricity uh, that isn't um, reliable. And so we have to pair the intermittent renewables with proper storage. And uh, so as the adoption of these intermittent renewables increases, uh, I expect that the demand for uh, stationary storage will increase. And I'd like to see liquid metal battery um, being deployed. Yeah. And do you think we'll have them in our homes? Yes and no. So um, one of the things that we learned, because the, all this work was done at MIT at the lab bench in tiny cells smaller than a coffee cup and external heaters and so on. But, but when we started uh, upscaling and determining what is the uh, smallest viable size, um, the, uh, it, it became clear that in order to have enough cells to generate the heat that will keep the, the entire battery uh, at operating temperature without any uh, auxiliary heat, uh, we really need massive facilities. It, this, this battery loves to be in the tens of megawatt hours, 100 megawatt hours, it's perfect for this. But for a single family home, you're probably looking at well, 100 kilowatt hours, maybe less. And um, our experience uh, has taught us now, now, of course, with all the information we have, uh, we could have gone back and calculated what the thermal properties are, and, but we, we had to build the thing in order to figure out what the, the uh, thermal properties are. But we, we know that if you get down to 100 kilowatt hours, um, the battery doesn't generate enough heat to keep itself uh, operating at, say, 500 degrees Celsius. So for that, that's what I call a small scale stationary stores, single family homes, small to medium enterprises and things like that. I have a different chemistry that was the aluminium sulfur chemistry um, and there's a new company that's starting the upscaling on that. So you, the the answer to your question is if, if you had a gigantic mansion and you needed something on the order of a, of a 10 megawatt hours of storage, yeah we could do that but for a typical single family home Basically, oddly enough, a single-family home would need storage for several days that would be about the same size as that uh, in, a, in an all-electric vehicle because electric vehicles these days are, are coming with um, between oh, 70 and 100 kilowatt hours. And that's, that's about what you would need to, to um, power a home for several days if you didn't have any wind or several days it's... Uh, uh, cloud cover and rain and you're not generating enough electricity. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now you already mentioned Microsoft being your first uh, customer. 
Um, but you also received startup funding from Bill Gates. And there was quite an interesting story there that you told in your talk about receiving. Yes. Can you can you tell us that again? Sure. So um, uh, at MIT, uh, I was teaching a, uh, a large um, introductory chemistry class that was one of the required classes. So I was uh, teaching to something like um, between 500 and 600 students, which was larger than the largest uh, uh, auditorium classroom. So around about uh, two early 2000s, um, my lectures were being recorded, and then uh, uh, as the internet developed the bandwidth to um, stream video, then the, the lectures were, were streamed. And the early days of internet, people, people had no idea of the power of internet. We, we would show everything. And uh, even with copyrighted material and so on and so forth. Um, and somewhere along the way around, I don't know, about 2006, um, I got a note from somebody who works at Microsoft who, who disclosed that Bill, Bill Gates himself, was watching those lectures. And um, uh, he, evidently he, he boasted about this to an annual meeting of the entire corporation. And then around... Uh, I think it was about August of 2009, uh, he just stepped down as the uh, CEO of uh, Microsoft. And um, uh, I got an email from a woman who said she was his executive secretary. He was coming to Boston um, on such and such a day in September. Would I have 90 minutes to meet him? And uh, I ignored the email because I thought the students had hacked into my account and they were going to make a fool of me. And I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm smarter than that. So I, I didn't reply. And then about a, uh, 10 days or so later, uh, I got another email. And she said, perhaps you didn't see my email, but Mr. Gates really wants to meet with you. And I showed that to several colleagues and they said, um, uh, I think this is real. So then I, I wrote and said I would agree to meet with him and... Um, and I, I said, do, would somebody tell me what this is about? And he gave me a very detailed email of, of uh, four points that he wanted to discuss. And, and sure enough, that day, I, in fact, I was teaching the class. I taught from 11 till noon, and then we met in 90 minutes, and we talked about computers and education, distance learning, all of these things. And then towards the end of the meeting, uh, he asked me, so uh, what are you working on these days in, in your research? And I had very uh, early stage ideas. We had no, no results to speak of in the laboratory. Um, and so I sketched out the concept of liquid metal battery on the uh, uh, whiteboard in my office. And he looked at that and he said, if you ever decide to spin that out as a company, let me know. I'd be willing to put some money into it. And then about a year later, um, when we started getting some early results that indicated maybe this thing will really work. Uh, two of my students with whom I founded the company, which is now Ambry, uh, they, they approached Bill and Bill became our very first investor. So I met Bill not because I wrote a, uh, an op-ed piece for uh, Financial Times or Wall Street Journal. I met Bill because I was teaching this large uh, introductory chemistry class. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, and so I first saw you give a talk at the Isaac Newton Institute at an event organized by the Newton Gateway to Mathematics. So it was full of mathematicians, mm -hmm. essentially people working on theory that is relevant. 
Um, but in your talk, you also said don't trust the experts. So mm -hmm. what did you mean by that? And did you mean those experts that were sitting in the room? Well, I, it wasn't don't trust the experts. It was more uh, don't be um, uh, don't be uh, don't listen uh, to the advice of the experts. Um, uh, this is in batteries um, because the the battery field is so dominated by lithium ion. And my experience is that um, when when I propose something that's uh, radical, a radical innovation. Uh, the experts tend to be um, uh, quite severe, uh, quite negative. Um, they'll tell me, no, that's not going to work, that's stupid, or, oh, that's been tried. Um, and, and anything except encouragement. And so um, I, uh, I just trusted my own instincts, and, and I taught my students also to not, not to edit themselves. You know, if, if they come up with a, a wild idea and then they say, oh, I'm not going to bring this up in a meeting because people are just going to laugh at me and so on. I said, no, no, there's no no idea that's uh, that's uh, worth ridiculing. Let's listen to it. And pardon me, if we don't like it, then um, we have to have a scientific reason. We can't just dismiss it because um, somebody said it and we don't respect that person or something like that. Um, and so with that kind of a, a rich, uh, supportive invention environment, uh, I think that helped us uh, because most of the students that were working with me didn't have a background in electrochemistry, molten salts, liquid metals, but they were, they were very bright and they had a higher sense of purpose. They, they wanted to do something to uh, address intermittency of renewables. Um, and so with fresh young minds, and disregarding advice from the from the legacy battery people, uh, we came came out with the liquid metal battery. Mm, that's great. Um, and so the the event that I saw you talk at this was part it's part of a wider research program on dynamo theory. So that's magnetohydrodynamics. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people who talked there talked about theoretical results based on that theory. How has that interaction been between that theoretic part and your very practical approach of, to building the things? No, I think that uh, this has opened my eyes to a, a sector that uh, uh, I knew nothing about. And again, the I, I don't know of anybody in, in batteries, whether it's lithium ion or, you know, there was uh, sodium sulfur, zebra, uh, of course, the aqueous flow batteries and all this. I, I've never heard anybody talk about uh, magneto hydrodynamics, nothing. And so uh, by my listening to all of these presentations, uh, many of them from Dresden, from, um, from uh, Paris, Saclay, and then also from uh, Cambridge University, uh, this opened my eyes to uh, features that have been overlooked. And so um, I've taken this under advisement and, uh, I, and I, I went further and I, and I complimented the people who made those presentations and said, you know, the currents that we get in, in these batteries, uh, I'm not sure that high, but there's a second area that I work in and that's electrometallurgy and that's molten oxide electrolysis for green steel. And those currents are much, much higher than we experience in, in batteries. And uh, that's a message that I'm carrying back to the people that are active in uh, electrolytic 
production of metals. Again, I've never heard anybody look at uh, the, the magnetohydrodynamics the way that people did at this conference. One of the things that I learned at the, at the conference was that um, these uh, magnetic forces, uh, there's energy associated. Um, and so, um, you know, maybe there's some parasitic losses by uh, redesign of the cell, we could get um, much better uh, energy utilization. So uh, I was I was very heartened by by uh, what I learned at the meeting. So it was a really useful meeting then for you and probably for everybody else as well. Well, certainly for me. I mean, many of these people know each other, and so I think they were um, bringing bringing themselves up to date. Uh, for me, it was uh, really. I mean, I'd been to Dresden, I, I knew some of the work that was going on there. Um, but, uh, of course, a lot of progress, and, uh, and then um, met some new people, new ideas. Um, it, was, it was really uh, uh, exciting two days for me. I think you know, the, the, the uh, Isaac Newton uh, Institute, um, it's, it, it's really playing a, a huge role in... Um, educating people. That's it for this edition of the PLUS podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the theory behind liquid metal batteries, which is mentioned in this podcast, magnetohydrodynamics, go to plus.maths.org and search for magnetohydrodynamics, which is all one big, very long word. You can also watch a talk Sadaway gave at the Newton Gateway event by going to gateway.newton.ac.uk and searching for the history of liquid metal batteries. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.